Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And uh, we will read the first four verses at this time. If you would, just leave uh, perhaps a bookmark there, and there'll be some other places that we'll go throughout the morning. But uh, for now, 1 Corinthians 15 will be our starting point. Verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes these words to the Corinthians. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. You know the phrase, don't you? Many of you anyway. Others of you are looking at me like I didn't know you had an Aunt Sally, and what did she do wrong? Well, of course, this is a mnemonic device meant to help remember the mathematical order of operations. What does it mean? P-E, parentheses and exponents. M-D, multiplication and division. A-S, addition and subtraction. And in those two pairs is the way you are supposed to, or excuse me, those three pairs. uh, This is the order that you're supposed to use to solve uh, mathematical problems. It doesn't cover every realm of mathematics, as you know, but when you have those things only involved, you're supposed to address them in that particular order. This is the way that you're supposed to solve them. There is a way to go about doing things. There is an order of operations, and just as it is true in mathematics and it is true in other realms of life, so it is also true when it comes to realms of biblical content and of what the church is built upon. And there is nothing that is more primary in the order of operations biblically in terms of the particular subjects addressed than the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our primary thing that comes from the scriptures. Now this is not to say that this is all there is. It's not to say that it is the very first thing, the very first subject that someone may hear about when they learn the Bible. It's not to say that it is the first thing that you read about when you come to the scriptures, as we all know. In Genesis 1.1, it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So it's not to say that this is the only thing that we talk about or that it is always the very first thing that comes out of our mouth when we are doing ministry, but it is true that it has this primary place. And it has not only the primary place, but it also has effects that go through all the ministry that we do. And so what we want to talk about this morning is doing ministry with the gospel at the center, at the center of everything, at the center of our ministry. 
Now, if you're wondering why we're addressing this, uh, if you haven't been here the past few weeks, we have been talking about the subject of your ministry in the church. What does it look like to do ministry in the church? And we're not just talking about a specific application of this, as in here's something to go do, and here's a job to have, and here's a task that you have, or here's a role. What we're trying to do is to understand what the Bible says about the principles of ministry. And what it is that actually drives these things biblically. What are we supposed to be doing, starting with why we're even doing ministry in the first place? What are the goals of biblical ministry? And what are the undergirding principles that direct us as we're seeking to accomplish those goals? So in addition to seeing that our goals that we're supposed to be pursuing are discipleship and transformation and worship of God and love uh, coming out of an overflow of a pure heart. In addition to pursuing these goals, there are certain ways that we are to go about this and certain principles to guide us along the way. And so far, what we've looked at are the first two in this series, namely a high view of Scripture and a high view of God. A high view of Scripture and a high view of God. We are to be guided by a view of the Bible that is as high as God has, as high as Christ had as high as the Bible itself has. We found in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that how much scripture is inspired by God. All scripture. And not only is it inspired, but it's also profitable. It is useful and it equips us for every good work. If we're going to do ministry, then 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that scripture is all we need and all scripture is needed in order to bring about what we are to accomplish. So that's what we looked at two weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at what is taught throughout scripture, namely a high view of God. That God is to be exalted. That God is not merely there to fulfill our hopes and dreams. Or for him to get in line with our plan. Or for God to just be talked about in casual terms as if he's merely our friend. Or someone that's just along for the ride. That we don't bring our own judgment upon God and say that he's the one that has to meet our standard, but rather it's the other way around. A high view of God means that he sets the standard. He shows us what righteousness is like. He shows us what love is. He shows us what it's like to be filled with truth. And so we come to scripture and we find a particular view of God and we elevate the view of God that is in our hearts to meet the standard of scripture. And understanding who God is drives everything that we do in ministry. It means that we seek to form in our own minds an idea of who God is in reality. We don't make a God after our own image or images of the things around us in the world. We don't bring God down to our level. And we don't treat him as if ministry can be done without understanding and worshiping and knowing him. We don't see the knowledge of God as the means to the end of making our lives better. We see the knowledge of God as the means to the end of worshiping him and of being transformed to his image and of following after him and modeling our character after him and his standard that he sets. But this morning, we want to look at the core message that we proclaim as a church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now again, when we talk about the gospel at the center, uh, I'm almost a little hesitant to use the phrase because it's been so 
uh, perhaps overused, but at least it's been very used in recent years. Everything seems to be gospel-centered these days, doesn't it? And unfortunately, what that sometimes means is that the only thing that we're even allowed to talk about is the gospel. And if we disagree on anything else, then we're really just wasting our time to talk about it. It is unfortunate that the gospel as the center has become in evangelicalism really the gospel as the sole subject of conversation. And even then it really has been whittled down and narrowed down to a very, very small thing uh, with what you're allowed to actually talk about sometimes because you can't disagree about anything related to it or else you're sort of missing the point. We need to be gospel-centered, everyone needs to be gospel-centered, and we all just need to focus on these very few small things and not let the other things matter to us at all. Well, it is true that the gospel is of first importance, but of course it's not of sole importance, and the rest of the Bible gives us a framework for understanding the gospel. It's very difficult to understand the gospel itself without understanding the Old Testament's preparation for that. This is why Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 to Timothy that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament ought to prepare us to believe the gospel. And the New Testament not only tells us about the gospel, but it also tells us about all the things that we need to do in response to having believed it. All the ramifications of what it means for a person who has believed the gospel to actually live the Christian life. This is what the Bible does. So it doesn't just give us this. The Bible is certainly more than the gospel, There is more to ministry than simply understanding it and preaching the gospel. But there also at the same time is certainly not less. There is certainly not less. And there is nothing more central in our message and our ministry than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. And so what I want to show you today is simply what the gospel is and why it must be central in our ministry. What is the gospel and why must it be central in our ministry, and in the, at the end, I'll just give you a few uh, considerations for how we might make sure that that happens. So what is the gospel? Let's start just by considering that question. I don't want to assume that we all understand what this is, and I do also want to assume that if we do know what it is, we still need to be reinforced with it. So the message of the gospel is the first thing when we consider what the gospel is. The message of the gospel, and there are just a few things that I want to mention about this. First of all, it is a message of good news. It's a message of good news. This is what the word actually means, doesn't it? You know this. The word gospel is from a word that means good news. It means uh, to preach the gospel means to proclaim the good news. There had been a period of a long time before Jesus showed up on the earth that Israel as a nation was left in bondage and exile. And when Jesus showed up, he said, there's something good I have to tell you. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the good news. But it's not just limited to that nation because there is also the good news that the other nations who have wandered in their own way, everybody in the world doing their own thing, living their own life, trying to find purpose, trying to find meaning, being lost and having no idea who God is or anything to do with what truth really is and searching desperately or just pretending like it doesn't matter and going about their business, whatever their approach to life may have been, the gospel 
intercepts them on their path and says, here is good news. You now understand why everything exists, what the world was made for, and you, though you have been in trouble because of your sin against God, who you should have been worshiping and striving for, instead, now here's the way of salvation. It is a message truly of good news, and we ought to make sure people understand that we have the best news out there. What a welcome message This is in some ways, understandably, not everybody wants to believe in the gospel when they hear it, but in a world that is filled with bad news, isn't it great to think that we have a message that is good news and not just on the same scale, but cosmically good news, eternally good news. This is what we have. The message of the gospel is a gloriously good thing to be able to tell to people. The message of the gospel is, first of all, a message of good news. Secondly, it is a message about Jesus Christ. It is a message about Jesus Christ. And uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 28 says this very straightforwardly. We proclaim him. We proclaim him. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Paul says in verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the message that we preach. It is about Jesus Christ. The gospel is not get your life together. The gospel is not you can be better. The gospel is not just some general moral principles. And the gospel is most definitely not just an example or a testimony of our own changed life. The gospel is a message about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who became also man and who took on flesh and came into this world to be the Savior of anyone who trusts in him. This is a message about Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is who we proclaim. Thirdly, it is a message about historical events. This is a very important thing to remember in our day in particular. It's a message about historical events. Now, you may be still here in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Let me just pick up again back in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Do you notice here, there are past tense verbs. This happened, and this happened, and this happened. And not only that, he goes on. And he says, after he was raised, there were witnesses to this fact. Verse five, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So here is Paul saying, not only did the Bible predict this, but also this happened. He died, he was buried, he was raised, and I'm not the only one saying this. And in fact, we're not just saying this is some kind of spiritual resurrection or that's some kind of vague idea that, well, you know, Jesus is alive in our hearts, or Jesus is out there somewhere, or he went to a better place and now we just kind of follow after him. It's nothing like that at all. This says that he really rose from the dead, and there were historical witnesses to that fact who could have been sought out and who would have testified to having seen him in the flesh after he died. 
This is a clear statement that there is a historical dimension to the gospel. We, when we preach the gospel, we're not proclaiming a life system. We're not just telling people here are better principles to live. A lot of religions are out there that will tell you this is the way to live or this is the philosophy to live. And the reason why people, many people are setting aside religious things other than the scientific age that we live in kind of taking priority is that they can get all that they need out of philosophy or other things like that or at least what they think that they need and what they want. They don't really need religion when those things are not necessarily about the history of it anyway. But the gospel is built upon a foundation of historical claims. If these things did not happen, then there is no substance to our message at all. The gospel is about things that happened in the world. And if they had not happened, there would be no reason to believe it at all. No reason to follow Christ. This is why Paul goes on in verse 12. Listen to his argument. If Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead... How does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? No such thing as people being raised from the dead, some among the Corinthians were saying. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And listen to this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is in vain, also is vain. If Jesus was not historically, literally resurrected from the grave, then the gospel is a bunch of hogwash. It's a, bunch, it, it's a bunch of garbage. It has nothing to do with anything that can help you out. In fact, he says in verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You have entirely wasted your life if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. So it's really important that we hold fast to this idea that the gospel is about historical events. We believe the gospel because there is testimony in the scripture that it happened, that these things actually happened. So this is a message that tells us that Jesus came to the world and did these things, and the historicity of them matters completely. Now, having said all these things, the gospel does something. It is a message next of salvation. It's good news because... It is a message of salvation. In Ephesians 1, verse 13, Paul refers to this gospel as this, the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of your salvation. In Romans 1, 16, Romans 1, 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is a saving message. Now, a lot of people don't really seem to understand what even it is that they need to be saved from. They believe that something is wrong, or at least those other people out there need to be saved. After all, they're the ones who are ruining our lives. They're the ones who are changing our country. They're the ones who are harming my family. They are the ones who are making life difficult for me at work. They need to change. And really the only salvation I need is to be delivered from the troubles of my life and the problems that I have and the difficulties that I'm going through. Oh, I may have some bad habits and I may have done some bad things, but do I really need to be saved? Saved? That's a very strong statement. 
But it's true that the message is one of salvation. And this idea that we need to be saved implies that you're being saved from something. And specifically that something is being saved from our sins and from the judgment that we rightly deserve because of this. In fact, the New Testament is very direct about it. In Romans 2, verse 6, Paul says, uh, excuse me, uh, not in verse 6, it says... Well, let's see. I'm looking for the verse verse 16. Forgive me. Uh, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. According to my gospel. The gospel is a message of good news, but the assumption underlying the good news is that God will bring all of us into judgment. And we need to have a way to escape it. Because none of us will be able to stand before God and say, yes, God, I met your standard." Yes, God, I was good enough. Yes, God, I worshiped you the way that you created me to do. We don't. We haven't. So we all have sinned against God. That's what he goes on to say in Romans chapter 3 in verse 10 where he says there is none righteous, not even one. Not even one. Because we know what people need to be saved from, we tell them, what they need to be saved from. When we do ministry, when we preach the gospel, we don't tell people that their problems are that they just aren't happy enough at work. We don't tell them that Jesus can fix their marriage, though sometimes the gospel gets at the root of the things that do cause marriage to be more difficult than it should be. We don't tell people that the church is there to help them make friends, although if you come to Christ, you will find many friends. These might be problems, but there's something that is much bigger. We need to be saved from two things, namely the guilt of our sin and the power of our sin. We need to be saved from the guilt of our sin and the power of our sin. We need to be saved from what we deserve, the punishment for our guilt, and we need to be enabled to be transformed When we are apart from Christ, we stand before God guilty and deserving his judgment, and we're unable to do what God says. In Romans 8, verse 7 and 8, it says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot, cannot please God. A lot of people talk about changing their life. They think that that will make them right with God. The Bible says until you believe in Christ and you are no longer in the flesh but in Christ, in the spirit, then you won't be able to please God no matter what life change you may make. So we need to be saved from sin's guilt. Namely, we need to be forgiven. And then we need to be able to be transformed, which only happens once we have come to Christ and put our faith in him and been forgiven. And the spirit of God dwells in us and enables us to do what he says. In addition to this, salvation brings not only forgiveness of sin, but of course, eternal life. Eternal life. Because the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The beginning of that here and now as the Spirit of God gives life to our mortal bodies in being able to overcome sin and then in the future when Christ makes all things new where we have transformed bodies, we're glorified, we're brought into eternal life in its fullness. So salvation is a message. The gospel is a message of salvation 
It is a message where God forgives our sins by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, taking the penalty for our sins. Jesus did come to set an example, no doubt, but his life and his death was no mere example. It was redemptive, atoning, and the gospel is a message about how we can be saved from our sins. So the gospel is the good news of what Jesus did in this world, in time and space, in history, for the salvation of sinners by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So that's the message. Well, what do we need to do with that? Do we just say, that's great. Here's the message. I guess that's all for us now. No, we have to do something with that. Namely, we have to respond. We have to respond to the gospel. And it's not a message where we say, wow, I'm in trouble. I better get my life right. We don't do that. Instead, we have a twofold response. We call for a response of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. And these, as you may well know, are not two separate responses, but they're two sides of the same coin. They are two things that happen together, but they speak of different dimensions of the work of turning your heart to God. So we begin with faith. We begin with faith. Colossians 1.4 talks about your faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 1.17 says, the righteous man shall live, how? By faith. How do you come to be righteous in your standing before God? How do you have your sins forgiven? It's not by doing a bunch of good works. It's by believing the message of the gospel. Faith is the appropriate response to the message of salvation. What is this though? What is faith? Because people talk about faith all the time. They talk about all kinds of things to do with faith. Faith for many people simply means fairy tales or it means maybe a little bit less cynically, it can mean the sort of life principles that you hold to in order to get you through. Or it can just kind of mean that you have a hope that things will get better or you're very confident that things will get better. But faith is much more than that, much more secure than that, much more defined than that. We don't just simply believe that things will get better. In fact, in many ways in our lives, things, even if some get do better, some things do get worse. Some things get more difficult, even if things get easier. Whatever it may be that your life looks like, we certainly don't just assume that our circumstances are going to get better throughout life. And it's not even that we simply put our faith, not just in those things, but in God himself. Faith that saves is not simply faith in God. Many people believe in God who are not saved. The Jews of Jesus' day believed in God. They believed there was a God. They believed in the right God. They even believed that he had spoken in his word, but they were not saved. We can't simply have faith in God, even faith in the right God, though that is foundational. And it even is not simply that we believe that the Bible is true or that the gospel is true, though we must. What it is, is belief in the message of the gospel as the thing that saves and the knowledge that you must be saved. You know you need to be saved and you entrust your soul to God through Christ in order to seek that salvation. You say, I am not putting my hope in my good deeds or anything I've done, but I am casting my lot with you. And I'm saying, Christ, you are the one who can save me and no one else. No one else. Nothing else. Only your work, only what you have done can bring about salvation. And that you are implicitly saying by that, that his work is enough to save you. 
You don't have to add prayers. You don't have to add actions and activities. You don't have to add being a good person for some period of time. You don't have to make up the gap of what Jesus couldn't accomplish to get to God. Instead, you say, what Jesus did is enough and it is necessary and I am entrusting my entire soul upon what he did. And you cry out to him and plead with him to save you, knowing that he has offered and he has promised that he will if we do this. This is what faith means, trusting ourselves into the hands of a savior who has come to die for us. At the same time, Faith has another side of the coin, which is repentance. Repentance. In the book of Acts, Paul tells those at Athens in verse 30 of chapter 17 that God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Sounds a little bit sometimes like an old-fashioned kind of word, doesn't it? Repent. Repent. But what does it mean? It means to turn. It means to turn, to make a change of direction, not just a change of mind, but that does include a change of mind, but it is a change of direction. It is a change from living for yourself, living for sin, living under the power of the devil even, to serving God and living for him and submitting to him as Lord. Repentance is not making up for bad deeds. Repentance is not the good deeds that flow from repentance, it's not all the stuff that comes after. Rather, it is the turn. It is the turn from sin to faith in the Savior, from sin to following the Lordship of Christ. And it is that turn that consists of this act. So then, these are again two sides of the same coin. In fact, they're so tightly tied that you might even call them repentant faith or believing faith repentance. This really is perhaps a better description of it because both will come together. The kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that says, I can't live in sin anymore. I've got to live for Christ. The kind of faith that saves doesn't say, I will just submit to his lordship later on. The kind of faith that saves says, he's the Lord of all and I need to turn from my own way and submit to him. The same heart that would believe the gospel and recognize the evil of sin says, there's no way I can keep living that way. So anyone who would say that they believe the gospel but has no desire to turn away from the sins they say they needed to be saved from ought to be very concerned whether their testimony is real. At the same time, the kind of repentance that saves is the kind of repentance, the kind of turning from sin that doesn't say, I'm going to make up for this because you understand just how bad it was and there's no way you could ever make up for it. You don't turn from it and say, well, I can change and get better because you know that on your own you can't. And you understand that it's so bad that you are guilty for it and you need someone to save you for what you have done. So the kind of repentance that saves is the kind of repentance that puts its hope in the work of Christ, not in the works that come from repentance. This is not about how good you become, though we should strive to be as holy as we can. Rather, this is about the turn to put our hope in Christ, to no longer live for ourselves, but as 2 Corinthians 5 says, for him who died and rose again on our behalf. I might simply note here as well, before we look at a few other things, that if you're in this room and have not responded in this way, I think it's obvious that you need to do this. It's the only way of salvation. 
It is the only way to get to God. None of our works can make up for it. No other way. No pleading, no prayers, no acts of righteousness, nothing. Nothing except the work of Christ can save you. And we all need to be saved because of where we stand before God. And so I plead with you to turn to him for salvation. This is the message of the gospel and our response to it. Let me give you a few things next as we consider some characteristics of the gospel. Characteristics of the gospel. And these, this is where we shift to how this starts to impact our ministry. Uh, as I've already mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel is of first importance. It is of first importance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered this to you as of first importance. This is the first thing that he did when he came to Corinth. He says, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm not going to tell you all about how you've got your stuff wrong on marriage roles. I'm not going to tell you all about spiritual gifts. I'm not going to tell you about gender stuff. I'm not going to tell you about how you need to stop living in this way or that way and just kind of get better. I'm telling you, we are all sinful and you need a savior. And this is what Jesus has done. That is the first thing. It is of first importance. And very often we spend way too much time trying to convince people who don't love and know and trust in Jesus that they need to change their lives. Is it true that they do? Certainly. Almost everyone, well really actually, sorry, everyone does need to change their life in some way and many significant ways. But that's not our message. The gospel is of first importance. First importance. So our aim with someone, if we are seeking to minister to them faithfully, if we're trying to persuade them of anything from the word of God, it ought to be this, that they need a savior and that Jesus is that savior and that they need to trust in him. So it is of first importance. Uh, Secondly, it is exclusive and necessary. The gospel is exclusive and necessary In Acts 4, verse 12, you may know this particular passage. But here Peter and John have been persecuted for preaching the message. And Peter says this in verse 12, Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. By which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only way. You know John 14, 6, don't you? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except how? But by me, through Jesus Christ. How can someone come to the Father except through the Son? And this is not our decision to be narrow Christians, narrow-minded who just have our way and aren't open to what other people are saying. This is God's determination. God is the one who is saying these things in his word. We simply follow along. So we say it is exclusive. If there were other ways of salvation that God had provided, we would tell people about those as well. But there's only one. And because there's only one and we have this treasure entrusted to us, we have to protect it as a church, meaning we have to make sure that we never twist the gospel we never let false teaching get in about the gospel again if it's the only way people can be saved and you mess it up then you've just lost that message of salvation so as a church we have to protect it we have to guard it this is by the way what many of the functions of the church are intended to do this is why first timothy spells out so many instructions about the leadership structure of the church and how people are supposed to conduct themselves in the household of god the reason is because of the greatness of the message 
So many things are given as far as New Testament instructions that are meant to surround and support and protect the fidelity of God's people to the gospel message itself. This is why these things matter. This is why being gospel-centered doesn't just mean that we only care about getting the gospel right. It means that we care about getting everything that the Bible says right. Because if we don't, then the gospel itself will be under attack. So we have to keep its protective shields, if you will, up and in place. But we don't just guard it, we proclaim it. Because people need to know it as well. We protect this message, but we also proclaim the message because it is, again, the only way of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that uh, in verse 4, in whose case, the unbelieving, namely, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the Im- uh, glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But verse 6 says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We preach this message because this is what God uses to bring life to people who are under the blinding work of the God of this world as he refers to him, of Satan himself. So we preach this message that God uses to bring light, to bring salvation It is exclusive and necessary. People have to have this message or they cannot be saved. But at the same time, even though it's exclusive, it's important to remember that it's also universal. Now, the accusation of being narrow is really just a complaint about the means of salvation because the gospel is actually the most universally applicable message that you can find. It applies to everybody in the entire world. This is not just a message for Americans or for Jews or for people who lived in ancient times. This is a universally applicable message. It's the same message, therefore, for everyone. Everyone. What does Romans 1.16 say again? It is the power of God for salvation to whom? Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. That's the only qualifier. Do you put your faith in the message or not? If you do, guess what? You can be saved. He goes on to say to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this is true of all nations. It's true of all people. And this is why Paul can say in Galatians 3, verse 28, that in Christ there is what? Neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We sing. We all get the promise. It's the same message offered to everyone. Everyone. The message is never changed to try to appeal to anyone. We don't say, you know, I think if we just kind of tailor this a little bit this way and kind of tell them that the gospel will solve this problem for them, well then in that case, they might listen to it. Or they need to hear this one. You know, I know the gospel is here, but what they really need is this other thing. We don't do that because we trust what the Bible says, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is true whether they seem to want it or not. This is true whether at first glance it appears that they're going to receive it or not. We believe that the Bible says that this is the way of salvation that applies to everyone. So what this means is we can confidently go wherever, wherever in the world, at any point in time, to whoever with the same message. We don't have to figure out what people want. We don't have to tailor the message to our own area or our current time. What we have to do is 
make sure that people hear this message and understand where it changes their view of God and how it exhorts them to put their trust in the one who will save them. The gospel, by the way, has this power that's mentioned in Romans chapter 1, fixes our greatest problems, and it does so for everyone who believes. Along with this, by the way, the gospel is not to be changed. This ought to be obvious from simply saying these things, but the gospel is not to be changed. Paul says in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you received, excuse me, what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Strong words, aren't they? But there's a reason for that. Because this is the message that saves people from hell. This is the message that saves people from their sins. You cannot distort this or change this at all. So we as a church need to protect this message. We need to not tolerate when people have divergent views about the gospel. This doesn't mean that we're unkind. It doesn't mean that we are hostile or that we are rude. But it does mean that when it comes to the actual content of what people believe, we are unflinching. You must, if you claim to be a Christian, hold to these elements of the gospel. It is not to be changed at all. And it's not to be changed in what we proclaim. Now let's consider... The gospel's impact upon ministry. The gospel's impact upon ministry. And uh, there are just a few points to make here with this. First of all, the gospel is the content of our message. This just should be obvious from what we're saying here, but the gospel is the content and the focus of our message. And really, it's all that we're authorized to try to convince people to believe in terms of operating as a church. Churches decide in many ways that we're going to do all kinds of different things, but Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and do what? make disciples, disciples who believe the gospel. That's the idea. This is what we have the right to tell people. But all of a sudden, sometimes we kind of start to get ideas that, wow, people are listening to me. I can wax eloquent on everything else. Well, if it's not biblical and if it's not in this matter of first importance, we should be very careful whether or not we have the actual right to even say these things or in particular, whether it's wise to do so. These things happen, therefore, Jesus says, you need to go and tell people. This is the content of our message. Secondly, the gospel brings focus to our ministry. It brings focus to our ministry. Um, when Paul was making life decisions, 1 Corinthians 9, there are a couple of verses I want to read to you. Uh, he very carefully considered how everything he did impacted whether people would stumble over those things as they considered his message of the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians 9, 12, he's talking about some of the liberties that he had and some of the things that were his right to take advantage of that he had chosen not to. And he says, this is the reason. 1 Corinthians 9, 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. No hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you think about the things that get in the way of other people believing the message because of the way either that you live or the way that we conduct ourselves as a church? Can we sacrifice a few moments of conversation with a friend to welcome someone who might not believe the gospel so that we don't come across as rude and insulated and cliquish in our church? Can we 
be careful the way that we talk about other Christians around our unbelieving friends, and rather than focusing on the things that certainly we all have wrong, can we instead talk about things that are beneficial? Not trying to cover over or paper over the sins that are real of people that we know, but simply not tearing down our brothers and making the church and the gospel a less appealing kind of place. Can we be careful that we don't use language that will hinder the message or that we don't conduct ourselves in ways that will hinder the message? Do you think about the gospel in the way that you operate, in all that you do? Are you kind? Are you joyful? These are the kinds of things that must be done to avoid hindering the message of the gospel. Now, by means of this, we can save no one, but we're simply saying, I don't want to get in the way. I want to consider how what I do impacts people's willingness to listen to me when I proclaim this saving message. And so he says in verse 23 of the same chapter, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. The gospel brings focus to our ministry. Our first concern with someone, by the way, is whether or not they believe the gospel. Our outreach, whatever else it is, must have the gospel. If someone doesn't already believe it, that's what we're trying to bring about. This is what we do. The gospel thirdly motivates our ministry. It provides the motivation for our message. Paul was thankful. I'll just give you the reference. 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 through 14. He explains how the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. And this is what drove him to faithful service. It motivates our ministry. Number four, it provides our identity in ministry. Our identity in ministry. And just as an example of this, Paul says in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does that mean? I'm not out to please men. I'm not concerned about what people think. I'm not out there to try to win an audience. All I'm trying to do is live for Jesus Christ. When we minister to people, it's not about building up our own kingdom. It's not about how many people like us, how many people come to our church. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact of do we serve Christ faithfully and are we aiming for the goals that he has? And then number five, it frames our ministry to one another. The gospel doesn't just have to do with what we preach to other people, does it? It frames everything about our ministry to one another. It sets the standard for how we relate to one another in the church tells us we're supposed to have the bond of unity, Ephesians 4, that we are supposed to walk in love just as Christ also loved us, Ephesians 5. It's the basis for our fellowship and relationships in the church. The gospel is everything as far as undergirding how we serve each other and how we serve with each other. So the gospel frames our ministry to one another. Let me give you six quick tips, if you will, for keeping the gospel at the center, some practical ways to do this. First of all, stay in the Bible. Stay in the Bible. Learn it, read it, memorize it, listen to it preached. Just take it in. The Bible is very gospel-centered, and I would wager to say that if you go through the Bible in proportion to its fullness, you will come out exactly as gospel-centered as you ought to be, meaning that you won't neglect things that are not directly the gospel, but you also will not miss where it does talk about it. So stay in the Bible. Uh, secondly, preach the gospel to other people. Hard to forget the gospel if you're preaching the gospel, isn't it? Let's not just be content to preach it to ourselves, though we should. Let's preach it to other people who don't believe it and need to hear it. Thirdly, pray in light of the gospel. 
Pray in light of the gospel. Make your own prayers filled with these things about people needing to hear it. Uh, As you pray for other people in small groups and so on. Make your requests colored by the fact that the gospel matters. And whether they're saved or not matters. Number four, sing songs that talk about aspects of this message. This is what we try to do with our music here so often. So many things about the gospel and all the various components that go into that. Uh, Fifth, you get salvation testimonies in your church emails, don't you? Do you read those? Sometimes read those. Be encouraged by the work of God in people's lives. Read the salvation testimonies that you hear. Listen to people's testimony. Ask them how they came to Christ and appreciate the work that God has done in them. And then number six, what we're about to do. Give your attention during communion, the Lord's Supper, where you remember the work of Jesus Christ in dying for our sins according to the scriptures. Let's pray and then we'll move into a time of communion. God, thank you for the gospel. May our faith in it be strengthened and our proclamation of it be faithful. May you use it to save not only us who are here, but many others. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.